0: Welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge, with Richard Helpe. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Common Bridge. Very excited today. We have the Honorable Milton L. Mack as Rich's guest today, and we're in three different locations. So I'm going to introduce Judge Mack first with a short bio, and then I'm going to turn this over into a conversation that has begun taking place between Judge Mack and Rich Helpe. Judge Mack began serving as Michigan State Court Administrator in July of 2015, and he was previously the Chief Judge of the Wayne County Probate Court. He's a former president of the Michigan Probate Judges Association, and he's a past chair of the State Bar of Michigan's Judicial Conference, where he served on the Judicial Crossroads Task Force. Judge Mack also served as a member of the Governor's Michigan Health Commission, and Consolidated Government Services Committee. He's chaired the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments and the Board of Trustees of the Oakwood Healthcare System. In 2011, Judge Mack received the Frank J. Kelly Public Service Award from the State Bar of Michigan. He also serves on the board of the Eastern Michigan University Foundation, and Judge Mack is also a frequent author and lecturer on probate issues for the Institute of Continuing Legal Education and other organizations. We welcome Judge Mack to the program, but again, I'm going to turn it over to a conversation that's just beginning.
1: Uh, Judge Mack, welcome to the Common Bridge. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what your current role is and maybe some of the things you've done in the past that touch on mental health and the courts, jails and prisons, and perhaps education?
2: Okay. Well, um, I am now the state court administrator emeritus, and I've been assigned the task of uh, focusing on mental health at the national level and at the local level, the state level. I currently serve on the State Justice Institute uh, panel for developing a better approach to dealing with mental health, and I'm working with the Equitas group to design a new mental health code that we can use around the country to replace the old mental health code. The current mental health codes were written in 1975, and they were written with the idea of helping Empty the mental hospitals. Uh, And they did a good job at that. Uh, However, the other part of the equation was to build an outpatient treatment system, and that did not happen. So that leaves us with a situation where uh, the mental health codes are not designed to facilitate treatment. They're designed to make it hard to order treatment. So uh, we're working on that. I also serve as chair of the Governor's Diversion Council, which is focused on trying to divert people with mental illness from the criminal justice system uh i have been involved in healthcare for a long time now as a city councilman from wayne back in 1977 i was appointed to the people's community hospital authority board of directors which was a public not-for-profit which included five hospitals including annapolis hospital in wayne Uh, as the hospital environment changed we converted to a private not-for-profit uh just in time to keep the system from going under and then merged with oakwood in order to save the system so and later we merged with uh with beaumont so i'm i've been involved in in healthcare as primarily as a volunteer for the last 30 years or so but yeah and
1: and and the annapolis hospital um just to connect the dots for our listeners That is the Wayne Beaumont location that's made both uh, statewide and national press. Uh, It was uh, purported to be uh, a COVID-19 specialty care center and then was abruptly closed, although the health system is putting out uh, press releases saying, well, they're just pausing operations there. Um, So in the midst of this pandemic, and with normal healthcare needs uh, also still existing, uh, this community-based hospital has been closed by a big system. And you've witnessed that from its inception.
2: Right, I'm, I've been assured it will not be closed, that it will be reopening. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that occurs in the next two or three weeks, frankly.
1: Okay, uh, great. Well, that's good to know, know if it's gonna be opened. So today on the Common Bridge, uh, we are now, as of this date, uh, April 27th, we are perhaps on the backside of this wave of infections. I know that it's exciting that you can go get a tattoo in Georgia now, uh, but there are still you know, probably more unknowns than knowns. And, and, Mel, we were talking last week, you and I, about mental health services. And I think you've, you've set the stage well that in the 70s, we wanted to empty the mental hospitals. And and you were telling me about now, uh, through this pandemic, the increase in suicides, alcohol sales, domestic violence. What's happening out there, and why is it that we can't address this issue?
2: Well, I've been in contact with the sheriffs from Ottawa County and Kalamazoo County and Wayne County, as well as the prosecutor from Kent County, and they have seen a significant uptick in suicides. And they've seen domestic violence cases go up 50%. So it really is a challenge at this time, and it's where they're focusing a lot of their energy. Frankly, a lot of people who are in a fragile state don't have access to care right now, and and that's a problem. And of course, the situation we're in creates creates awkward, difficult situations.
1: milk prior to COVID-19, what resources could people in distress for uh, suicide, substance abuse, domestic violence, where could they turn prior to this pandemic? Or where was the system already fraying because of not replacing those inpatient services?
2: The system was in bad shape already. And uh, I've worked with the legislature over the last few years to alter the way we approach mental illness, basically to decriminalize it. I mean, for example, in the Wayne County Jail in 2017, there were 20,000 people who spent time there. 10,000 of them had a case history with community mental health, which means they had a documented mental illness. Now, that's just not acceptable. Uh, These people should be seen by the community mental health system. But the problem is it's, number one, underfunded. And number two, many of these individuals deny that they have a mental illness and refuse treatment that's a condition called anasognosia and and people with strokes have this sometimes where they'll deny that their right arm is paralyzed when in fact it is, but the brain just doesn't, isn't working right. So we have uh, these individuals who we can't intervene until they're a danger to self or others who wait too long. And, uh, you know, as as a judge, I I can't predict the future, but I, I can tell you whether or not someone is incapacitated at this time. So I've advocated for a long time that we need a mental health system that intervenes early in the course of someone's mental illness at the point in time where they become unable to make an informed decision before they have contact with the criminal justice system. And then we can provide that care on an outpatient basis. In fact, there's a Huron County is doing a great job with this. Uh, The psychiatrist, in fact, let me back up just a bit to tell you how it works right now or how it has been working. If you have a a loved one, say a son who has bipolar disorder and uh, becomes dangerous to self or others, not just incapacitated, you can march on down to the probate court and get an order to have your son picked up by the police. Of course, from your son's perspective, he's just been arrested and hauled off in a police car to a hospital, to a crisis center, where he's going to be screened by a psychiatrist he's never seen before. And then he'll be held against his will for a week or so to wait for a trial. In the meantime, he'll be examined by two other doctors he doesn't know, and uh, he may actually get a hearing, or, or he may be released before then, because the hospital is not designed to restore... Uh, competency is just designed to uh, reduce the risk, so you're not really well. And the the experience, as you can imagine, is fairly traumatic, number one. And number two, it is not therapeutic in the least. So what Huron County has done, and this is by implementing some of our new laws, they have a psychiatrist sign a petition saying that uh, your son has a mental illness and needs treatment because he lacks the ability to make informed decisions, and he's at risk of harm. That petition is filed with the probate court. He's not picked up, he's not examined by multiple doctors, and he's given a hearing date and has an attorney appointed. And he has the choice of appearing for the hearing or not. Well, uh, if he doesn't appear, the, proce- the proceedings go forward anyway. And uh, the judge makes the decision, does this, is this a person who needs treatment? And if so, He sends an order to the psychiatrist who then fills out the order in terms of type of medication, how often, how much counseling, and so forth, and sends it back to the court. So how's it working? Well, the first 10 people that were placed on these orders had a history of nearly 40 hospitalizations in the previous five years. Since then, nine of them have had no hospitalizations. One of them has only had two, and that's compared to over 10 from before. So the human and mental health agency is saving a lot of money by not hospitalizing people. And in fact, there's no point in this hospitalization process. It's expensive, it's uh, counterproductive and it's completely ineffective in most cases, in my view. So the outpatient order is for 180 days and, and that's kind of the time it takes to get someone on their feet. So the irony is that, um, when assisted outpatient treatment first came out, the law was designed so that it was easier to get someone hospitalized than it was to get outpatient treatment. Now, in my view, the least restrictive environment is outpatient treatment, and that should be the easiest course of action, not the hardest course of action. So there are things we can do and things we can do better, but it's a system that needs to be resourced better, quite frankly. Mental health uh, across the country has been slashed significantly, even before COVID. Uh, it got it got sliced in two thousand eight with the recession, and never really made it back. But
1: and we we've seen we've seen the impact on the healthcare system. Um, I know we were working in another upper Midwest state three years ago, and the tracking of patients. In a typical cycle would be somebody doing something threatening, getting a police intervention, uh, the police not arresting the individual, taking them to the hospital ER, getting an admission, calming them down, very expensive, of course, and then releasing them. And next weekend, the pattern starts all over again, um, where there wasn't any effective treatment. So... I think what you're advocating is that we're going to need more proactive outreach, more monitoring, and continuity of care. You know, I was wondering also, you know, in this uh, day, we've seen acceleration in telemedicine for part of our primary care, and some of the regulations have come down so that people can get their medical needs attended to uh, during a time that they might be in quarantine. Any view on whether telemedicine could be employed as a way of leveraging our resources to reach more people.
2: Ironically, COVID is enabling that to happen. Uh, I serve on the board of Southwest Solutions, which is a community mental health agency in uh, lower east side, lower west side of Detroit. And uh, so the the persons who are under their care cannot come in for their appointments due to the COVID. And so the social workers who normally schedule four to six of these uh, reviews per day and hope everyone shows up, now just make phone calls to people. And as a result, they're contacting more people, number one. And number two, the patients like it a lot better. It's more private. They don't have to walk into the building. Nobody can look at them, number one. Number two, they don't have to travel. They don't have to take public transportation. They can take care of it in their home where it's uh, you know, uh, less stressful. Telemedicine is really a breakthrough for the, the, the fact that we have a shortage of healthcare personnel. Healthcare personnel can be far more effective uh, using telemedicine just because of the time involved in travel from point to point. We're seeing in the jails. It's hard for the uh, social worker to get into the jail in order to see someone to make arrangements for discharge. It's very difficult. You know, it's a military site. Now, uh, social workers are working from their office and connecting in the jail with the individual, and they can plan things better. We're not going back, frankly. The value of this is, is overwhelming. And uh, there, there may be times when you have to have a face to face, but much of the time you don't. And we shouldn't make that happen. It's the same thing in probation. You know, we make probationers travel uh, distances to get to the probation uh, officer. Who they check in? Well, they can check in from home too. My wife runs a mental health court in the city of Wayne. Their last review was on Zoom, and everyone loved it. <laughs> the The participants, in terms of people from the medical community, uh, as well as the defendants who were uh, having to address their issues, so it's tremendously convenient for everyone involved. I've been involved in court reorganizations issues too, and. People don't necessarily want courts. They want the outcomes they can get from courts. So whether we deliver it in person or over the Internet, if you ask the public, they love not having to come to court.
1: Let's, let's talk a little bit. I want to spend some time on jails and prisons and then maybe jump back to courts. So what we've seen in recent weeks is that it's clear that close proximity and the sanitation conditions, or lack thereof, put incarcerated people at very high risk of infection. And, you know, look, none were given a death sentence or a sentence where a serious infection was part of it. And now we're releasing people. I I guess a question that someone might ask would be, what are the quantifiable risks to the public? Are there antisocial people that are being released? Will that be more crime? Are there people that, you know, maybe shouldn't have had to be incarcerated in the first place? And where do we send those that are released because they need to be in quarantine for, I think the current wisdom remains 14 days. Um, If we take a person out of a highly infected environment and then drop them into a family home, that doesn't seem like a great outcome there either. What have you thought about this much?
2: Well, actually, what I do know is that most of our jails have reduced their census. And uh, I think Muskegon went from 180 in their jail to 20.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: there's now the question, and the person being released, they're, they're based on, it's based on a lack of risk. They are found, and, and frankly, if you think about it, if half the prisoners in Wayne County Jail are have mental health issues, Many of them got there committing crimes that are relatively low in significance, trespassing and the like, but they can't make bail. They can't make $50 bail, so they stay in jail. So we're we're seeing uh, what this release of prisoners is demonstrating is that we're putting too many people in jail in the first place. And let me just give you a a great example. In Miami-Dade, Judge Steve Leifman Became a judge about ten or fifteen years ago. Prior to that time, he was the uh, he became public defender. and He went and visited what was called the I think the ninth floor of the jail, which was where they really kept people with mental illness, and it was incredibly squalid. So he wrote a letter to all the relevant people to have a meeting and talk about this. And of course, nobody showed up. Then he became a judge, and he sent the same letter. Everybody showed up. Judges are great conveners. Anyway, what he has done, they've provided uh, crisis intervention training for all law enforcement officials in Miami D. That's over 5,000 people. They trained officers on how to interact with people. And then they divert people who are mentally ill into treatment. The implementation of this program resulted in the closure of an entire jail, saving $12 million a year. Because law enforcement was trained in crisis intervention training, there were fewer injuries sustained by the law enforcement. The result was that workers' comp premium went down. And because people with mental illness were no longer being beaten or shot, uh, their litigation dropped. So when they went to New York to have their bond rating review, the bond raters said, well, we like all the stuff you're doing, but what happened to your litigation? And they indicated what happened to it. And they said, well, we're going to raise your bond rating. So the last 10,000 stops in Miami-Dade for persons with a mental illness resulted in less than 100 arrests. In the past, you'd have 10,000 arrests. This has not resulted in an increase in crime, but it has resulted in people getting healthier and getting them into treatment. And, and Miami-Dade has done that, and they're not a Medicaid expansion state, so Michigan is. So we're in really better shape than they are to try to address that issue. But we were down there touring the place, and uh, we actually had a reporter from Bridge Magazine embedded with us, so to speak. And he went on a on a drive with a police officer who's trained in CIT, and they got a call that there was a disturbance at a Burger King, and so they went to the Burger King, and the officer walked in, and there was a uh, a man who was obviously having a mental health issue, yelling and screaming and so forth. So he went over to the man and he said, uh, Hey, can I help you? And chatted with him for about 15 or 20 minutes until he got relatively calm. And he said, you know, these people are trying to have a lunch don't well, we go outside and talk. So they went outside and talk. Okay. The problem inside is done. He, didn't, he stayed with this guy and talked to him for around 45 minutes. And when he got done, the, the guy who had settled down completely, they shook hands and off they went. Now. In the past there would have been an arrest, maybe a fight, someone might have got hurt. You know, they just changed the way they, they do things. And we just need to do the same thing.
1: I, I love that story and I, I love it on a number of reasons. First of all, the police department is a reflection of us and that we are a compassionate and generous nation and that that compassion's on display. And I think it also points out the terrifically difficult job of being a law enforcement officer in that in the course of uh, perhaps even a short of period as an hour you need to be a mental health counselor a marriage counselor someone to enforce traffic ticket and at in any instant you could have to go into warrior mode and uh, what a great story that is that that officer knew which of those skill sets to exercise for A great outcome but one of the things I want to ask a question about some of the the numbers that with that dramatic of a reduction in jail population and without the corresponding you know increase in crime or horrible things happening that people hyped up it, it can only be one of a few explanations like people aren't out there available to be victims that'd be one explanation or it could be. There's people that are in the jail that they we really weren't protecting society from anything. And and it made me think about bail. Is that an artifact of an earlier age? I mean, it wasn't it really designed to make sure people appeared in court? And it seems like we have so many other ways of ensuring that these days. Have you given that much thought?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh Back in 1968, Bobby Kennedy scheduled, put together a group of people to say, look, we're putting too many people in jail for no good reason. And this resulted in a significant reduction in the number of people in jail. Since that time, it's just so easy for a judge to say, well, I'm going to set a $100 bond or a $1,000 bond. It has become the default. And so we actually have a jail population now that's worse than it was when Bobby Kennedy tried his reform back in 1968. So in my mind, there's no question there are too many people in jail who don't belong there. The truth is, we can figure out, using basically artificial intelligence, who is safe to be released. Because jail is not intended to be punishment. Jail is intended to hold on to someone who may not show up for trial or is dangerous pending their hearing. They've been convicted of nothing. So and many of the people who are stuck in jail will plead guilty just to get out of jail and they get time served. I'll give you a great example. We had a situation where a young man was charged with a crime of some sort. He couldn't make bail, so he's in, he in jail waiting for his trial date. The trial date came up 30 or 40 days later and the prosecutor said, well, judge, he's, uh, uh, he has been in the jail for so long. How about times plead guilty and time served? And you can just go home. And the defense attorney said, well, yeah, that sounds good. And then the defendant said, excuse me, judge, you know, since I've been in the Wayne County jail, I've been getting treatment for my mental illness. Do you think I could have some more time? And the judge said, sure. How about 30 days? And he said, could I have more, please? She said, "Okay, 60 days. He said, thank you. Now, that's an indictment on several levels. Wow. Number one, this, this young man was there. Because he had a mental illness, not because he's bad, not because he's a criminal, but because he had a mental illness. Yet he had enough cognition working to know that he was getting help for his mental illness in the jail because he couldn't get it in the community. Now that's an indictment of our mental health system, not just the criminal justice system.
1: That that is a, a, a stunning example. You cause me to think. That a person, let's say, charged with uh, home invasion, right? They were out trying to burgle residences and, and they're arrested and there's a trial pending for a full adjudication. They no history of uh, violence, not carrying any weapons during the home invasions, not, not invading any occupied dwellings. If they were determined to be a low risk, what would be the real risk? Of letting them be free pending trial versus having them in jail pending trial?
2: No real risk. I mean, you know, in today's world it's very hard to disappear. You know, there's just too many ways to track people down. And let me let me just point out a there was a study done in Rikers Island. They took five hundred thousand cases where judges had set bail. They compared that, they took it to a computer, and had the computer do the calculation. You know, what would you do based on the risk analysis and so forth? And they could, the computer performed 20% better than the judge's.
1: Yeah. And, and isn't, isn't that something that uh, depends on the time of day, like the judge is more apt or less apt to give bail before lunch or after <laughs> lunch? <laughs> and- there is that. I mean, that
2: has been shown. Uh, and, and the other part of it is what we call implicit bias. It, it's something that people have, but they may not recognize it, but they may look at someone and, and think, oh, they don't look good. And then set a high bail when in fact they may be totally appropriate for release. And that just happens way too often. I, I can actually, I'll give you another story from Kenton County. This just happened. So they released a whole bunch of people and they had one guy who went out and committed a crime and was back in 24 hours. You know why he committed the crime? He felt safer in jail. He committed the crime so he can go back to jail. Now, There's really something wrong when you've got that going on.
1: Yeah, I've uh, actually, in my career programming, there were more than one occasion where we had groups of uh, fellas that came out of prison that were taught to program, and they talked about people that they knew that were, you know, doing long sentences in prison, serious, you know, felons, and that they'd get out and go commit a crime because they were just so accustomed to prison life. Um, but it's quite an indictment. So what, what I'm hopeful of here is that we could have a real discussion about how effective bail is, um, that an arrest is not an adjudication. An arrest is a thought or a probability that someone has committed a crime. And if they're not deemed a threat, putting them in jail because they don't have money is Horrible on a lot of levels, and the risk of somebody disappearing, a la DB Cooper, uh, is really low these days. Uh, it's difficult to disappear, so I, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll we'll be there. And in terms of of the you know the prison population, you know, so we move people that have been adjudicated, they've been given sentences, they're going to some level of state or federal incarceration. From your long years in this business, effective, ineffective in terms of uh, punishment, prevention, uh, appropriateness?
2: Well, uh, the fact is that nearly 25% of the prisoners in the state prison system have a history of mental illness. And uh, the odds are pretty good that they're there because of that. You know, we just have to stop using our jails and prisons as uh, mental hospitals. Ironically, there was a woman named Dorothea Dix back in Massachusetts in the early 1800s who uh, visited all of the jails in Massachusetts and was horrified by the fact that they're keeping people with mental illness in there in squalid conditions. And when she complained about it, they told her, well, that people with mental illness don't feel cold. Oh, So she started a campaign to build mental institutions. So... The mental institutions that developed in the uh, 19th century and end of the 20th century were by virtue of her work. She actually came to Michigan, and, and that led to the building of the um, Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital. So it's kind of ironic that we're, we're back to where we were in 1830, where we're housing people in prison and jail, as opposed to a hospital. We have about state nationwide, about 360,000 people in um, uh, prison who are mentally ill. We get about 2 million people with mental illness go to jail every year, but the mental health
1: system is not structured to help them very well. Well, what would you say to somebody that would posit the position that whether it's mental illness, or whether it is a criminally oriented person, um, that they are a danger and a threat to society and that they need to be uh, incarcerated so that you know, someone's daughter doesn't encounter them in a parking garage late at night and or we don't feel like they're going to be looking to our homes for break-ins and such. How, how do you address that public safety element of this? Uh, I guess I'm going the other way is who ought to be incarcerated these days? Well, people who are dangerous, yes,
2: but the system we have is expensive and ineffective because too many of the people who are in jail or even prison have their mental health condition deteriorate while they're there, and then they're released with no assistance. Because if you're in jail, it's it's temporary. You'll be coming out, and we're just going to repeat the cycle all over again. The smart thing to do is to get people treatment when they need it, help them when they need it, and avoid the criminal justice system altogether. Let me go back to bail for a second. There's a national movement to eliminate bail, money bail, uh, which I regard as a form of human trafficking. There's a tool that we are experimenting with to see whether or not the tool accurately predicts whether someone will uh, show up for the hearing or commit a crime while they're out on bail. And we expect to know the results of that by the end of the year. And this instrument would guide judges by saying, look, this person is low risk, so you should do bail. Or this person medium risk, so you, you can no bail, but you're going to put some conditions on them, like they wear an ankle bracelet or, or some other condition. This person's high risk, so they're staying in jail. So you divide the population between stay or go. And you stay if you're dangerous. You go if you're not dangerous. And we think we can have reasonable assurance that you'll show up. Kentucky did this years ago. There was no change in the crime rate. There was no change in the no-shows. The bail system is something that works against poor people.
1: I understand. And it seems like a policy adjustment to that would be there is no bail. And you need to show up. If you don't show up, there's going to be a consequence. And if you commit a crime during this period, there's going to be a consequence. Right. So, you know, if you are supposed to be in home confinement and you're you're wearing your ankle bracelet and you don't, there's going to be a consequence. So, that makes sense. Milt, uh, This has been a tremendous conversation, and I'm wondering if we could shift gears. Uh, I know you and I both share a passion for education. We know that there are great minds born in every zip code and each deserves the opportunity to fulfill whatever they can. And just a thing that's very troubling to me is that our school systems were ordered to close and there wasn't any support provided to how do you continue education? The School districts were largely left to their own devices, and it troubles me greatly that an affluent school system or a private school can pivot to online learning, continue to deliver quality education to people that have the means to have their kids equipped with computers, that have reliable internet access, and the less affluent have literally been thrown out of the education system. They don't have the computers or tablet devices. Uh, they don't have reliable internet. And their school systems aren't providing an online learning capability. And it, it troubles me greatly that there's that's going to just expand the gap. And we it seems we need to do something in the short run. And it seems that we need to address this structurally so that Every one of our young people get a great education.
2: Well, I, I agree with you completely. And, uh, and I think we should be planning right now for how to address that. And we should be planning for how to address it in the fall because we may be in the same boat. And if we don't address it, we're just going to inflict greater harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I've pointed out about just on the mental health side, is that there are these things called ACE events, uh, adverse childhood events, ACE events. And uh, there's, about, there's about eight or 10 of them. I don't, are you familiar with those?
1: Yes, uh, that many of the students that we work with through our charitable efforts score really high on the adverse childhood events. It wouldn't be unusual to have a child with one or two. We have many kids that have a handful and one thing that our listeners should understand that these events are no fault of the child. It is the failure of the adults in their life that have caused these adverse events and that we are doing everything that we can about addressing some of the damage that's caused by these adverse childhood events. I, I look at this COVID-19 is just adding to it.
2: Yeah, I saw a chart that showed the 50 states and the ACE event rate in every state. In every state, the number of children with more than two ACE events was less than 20%. But these are the kids who are at risk, but they're not hopeless. I mean, the, the champions program is a way to undo the damage caused by ACE events. You know, living in a household with an untreated mental illness is an ACE event by itself. And if you're living in a household with untreated mental illness, you're likely to have income security. You're likely to have uh, substance abuse. You're already up to three. You're probably going higher than that. So we know that kids who are in a household with three or more ACE events have a 50% likelihood of developing mental
1: illness. And that is a topic that we will go deeper in on another day in that I have strong views on policy approaches to this, but the first thing in fixing a problem is to recognize that we have one, and I hope our listeners will uh, demand that their local and state governments and the federal government, to the extent that they're involved in education, will begin to address these disparities in K through 12 education. Judge Mack, this has been a terrific conversation. I'm so glad that you were willing to come on and share just a little bit of all the work that you've done in the public sector, making uh, our country and our society better. Uh, We uh, appreciate your participation on the Common Bridge, and I I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Thanks so much for being on today.
2: Hey, thanks, Rich, for inviting
0: me. You have been listening to Richard Helpe's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpe. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.